Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. You know, coming from a different world and only being a politician for a short period of time, how am I doing? Am I doing okay? I'm president. Hey, I'm president. Can you believe it, right? Have you ever seen a Rose Garden ceremony for a bill that passed one chamber? This is a repeal and a replace of Obamacare, make no mistake about it. I have to rely on my staff, and I can probably tell you that I read every word, and I wouldn't be telling you the truth. Hello, and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who says he finally feels like the president now that he's taking health care away from 25 million people. Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. On Thursday afternoon, the House passed the American Health Care Act, the AHCA, by a four-vote margin. Donald Trump and the Republicans are celebrating the end of Obamacare and its replacement with, well, that's the question. The president doesn't know what's in the bill. Legislators who voted for it don't know what's in the bill. They couldn't wait for the Congressional Budget Office to do its analysis, so we don't know how many millions of people it will deprive of health insurance how many thousands are likely to die as a result, or how many billions of dollars it'll add to the deficit. But we've got some pretty good guesses, based on an earlier, somewhat different version of the bill that never came up for a vote. My guest today says that Trump care suffers from a fundamental lack of purpose. Democrats have a clear goal when it comes to health care. They want everybody to have health insurance. Whereas Republicans want, well, it's hard to say what they want. I'll be back in a moment to speak to Atul Gawande of The New Yorker about their rushed hodgepodge of a bill. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. My guest today is Atul Gawande. He's a surgeon, a healthcare policy expert, and an author. You've read his pieces in The New Yorker and his books, including the most recent Being Mortal. Atul, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jake. So I guess, you know, this this bill that the House passed yesterday is a bit of a pig in a poke, as they say. It's a bag that nobody's quite sure what's in it. But do you have a sense of what the fundamental difference is between the ACA, Obamacare, and this bill, the AHCA? 
Well, I think the, the fundamental difference is right now the goal, right? The, um, the goal of Obamacare, and it doesn't quite live up to it, right? So there are things we'd have to improve to achieve the goal, but the goal is universal coverage, that we would cover people's health care as a matter of entitlement and fundamentally protect them from bankruptcy um, for, for their health care needs and assure that they have access to quality care. The goal of the American Health Care Act, the GOP bill, is actually quite unclear to the extent that I can say, you know, there, there, there isn't anything that it seems to aim to make better about people's health care or the health care system. The primary thing is that it just wants to make, if you try to put it together, the goal seems to be tax cut, right? And then how can we take what we've got in the system and make it a little cheaper or a lot cheaper and um, then do what you can. In a sense, the the goal is just less of everything. I mean, isn't the basic Republican position that we want less government intervention in health care? It should cost less. There should be less regulation. There should be fewer requirements and inevitably fewer benefits. Part of the difficulty is that I, I've tried asking many people in the Republican Party what their goal is, and you get completely different answers, right? So the coverage caucus, as they're sometimes called, are interested in at least let us not make things worse and we can make, we can lessen the role of the federal government. We can lower the costs, but um, still uh, make it so that no one is made worse off. And then at the other end, you have the Freedom Caucus goal, which is that government should not be part of health care. And this is not a right, that health care is not uh, something that should be an entitlement that they've made as a major goal that Medicaid end uh, its role as a entitlement to health care and become a capped program, whether it's for the elderly in a nursing home or a disabled child. You know, it's like a certain amount of coverage and that's it. And regardless of whether it serves the purpose or not. So, you know, the part of what we were witnessing is the fact that the bill reflects the fact that the Republican Party doesn't have a clear goal. What did the Trump administration want? I mean, you worked in the Clinton administration on health care. The Clinton administration didn't get its bill passed, but we could have said exactly who in the administration was pushing it and how they were interacting with Congress same in the Obama administration. Here, it's not at all clear who in the Trump administration is behind any of this. I mean, did they just kick the process over to Paul Ryan in the House and say, pass something, anything, and we'll sign it? Well, um, it's a very complicated question to answer because Trump himself has said he wants a better health care system in every way. It should cover everybody. It should assure certainly coverage for pre-existing conditions. People should pay less and feel more secure, and it should cost massively less. And the problem is, is that's not a set of choices at all. Like it does, it's not a set of priorities. I want it all better. I want it to cost nothing, and I want the government out of it. And the, and then the different members of his administration have been triangulating within that sort of framework to accomplish their own aims. So whether it's Mulvaney, whose aims are how can we get to the tax reform bill and, and needs the, the trillion dollars in money that could be taken out of health care for corporate tax reduction and, and other things like that. Or, you know, Price to this day, he's a doctor. Um, I have to believe it believes that 
people uh, deserve some basic kind of health care benefits. And yet, um, you know, he's been really relatively uninterested in pro- making proposals about how you would really assure people coverage to the extent he has goals that I have seen. It's been um, try to build towards health care savings accounts. But even the health care savings accounts here in this bill, they did not say, we're going to really invest in beefing up that program. We're trying to look more like Singapore. That There, there, there wasn't a constituency within the administration really pushing in any of those directions. And Trump himself has been over all over the map. I mean, even last night, he met with the prime minister of Australia and said, oh, you have a much better health care system than we do. Australia has a single payer system, which is like the anathema to every Republican. That's right. There's plenty of times when he can seem like someone who, you know, could break that conservative liberal divide by coming in and saying, you know, he said during the campaign over and over again, I'm going to ensure that there's insurance for everybody. It, it seemed like a world where you could come in and Republicans and Democrats have a deal to finally actually, you know, go from still Obama has covered half of the uninsured. How do you get to the remaining half? And you could imagine ways that things could have gotten better. But it's very clear in governing that's been the rhetoric. It has not been at all what he's pushed for, asked his staff to deliver. He went on television uh, last weekend and said, oh, yeah, yeah, my bill covers pre-existing conditions. And you don't know if he's either just deluded or lying. You have 24 million people at minimum who are going to be losing insurance coverage under the bill. And then the amendments added all weaken protections for pre-existing conditions. So it's, it's, uh, it's just consistent with the way he's governing, which is that what he has to say does not correspond with what he necessarily does. Funny how that works, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> let's get into the substance a, a little more. I mean, talking about the, the pre-existing conditions as one very important point in the bill. How does that affect people? How, If some version of this or something close to it passed the Senate and actually became law, what would it mean for people who have pre-existing conditions, both people who get insurance now through employers the way I do, the way I suspect you do, uh, and people who are in some part of the public system, whether on Medicaid or buying insurance through the exchanges? Yeah, so it's incredibly complex <laughs> the way that they're going to they, – they, that it happens. So under the bill, a state could opt out of the pre-existing protection rules. And they do by telling the federal government that they have an alternative plan that's going to make sure that people are covered for it or that that premiums will go down. Um, those are very low bars to meet because it didn't. Um, and so basically, if a state requests to be relieved of the requirements for pre-existing condition protections for people or maintaining minimum benefit standards like having to cover maternity and mental health, they could opt out of it. So why would a state then propose that they want to remove those protections? And that has to do with the rest of the bill. So the rest of the bill, the one that was withdrawn a month ago, replaced the individual mandate that you had to buy insurance with the idea that you'd get a penalty of a 30% premium surcharge if you had a two-month gap in your insurance coverage. So in a sense, you pay more for insurance if you don't have insurance. The result of that is that healthy people will be the ones who won't buy insurance. And then when you really need it, you will go and try to find insurance. And 
that will lead the people in the exchanges in, in the private market to be sicker and sicker population. So the states, in order to keep the premiums under control, at, at some point will start to try to, uh, will feel a ton of pressure to then loosen all of the insurance standards because you, you're not getting enough healthy people to sign up. And that's when minimum benefit standards and protections for people who have health care issues um, will, would be uh, the kinds of things they'll feel the pressure to look for a waiver from. So that's where, uh, that's where people, you know, a friend of mine who has just been diagnosed with cancer and like most of the new jobs out there is working in a freelance capacity, she's deathly afraid that this could go away. Yeah, well, I mean, but the, under the under Obamacare, you were s- supposed to be penalized you, because of the individual mandate if you didn't buy insurance. But then if you were diagnosed with cancer, you could still enter the exchange and get insurance. They couldn't discriminate against you. Now, if that happens, what would happen to the same person? I mean, they... Uh, the the game of not buying insurance until you get sick doesn't work anymore under this system theoretically because they can discriminate against your pre-existing condition and you can't assume that you'll get insurance that will cover your condition if you wait till you get sick. That's right. Under the bill, um, before they made these last-minute amendments, they had protected, they'd said, look, you're still assured that you have pre-existing condition protection. So, if you didn't buy insurance, you'd have to pay a 30% surcharge when you signed up if you were waiting until you got sick. And then, and then the other thing they did is they heavily cut the subsidies. So uh, the charges could be, the amount that you're having to lay out could be quite high. And the reason why they said that 24 million people will, will lose insurance is because the costs would turn out to be so substantially high that it, it, it's, it's almost like a, it's, it's like a penalty on the sick uh, for getting coverage. Now you add in this formal also opportunity that the state can opt out of these pre-existing condition protections. Now, if I unexpectedly get diagnosed with a cancer, didn't have insurance, I try to go sign up, they can charge me any amount more, or just exclude you automatically from coverage. So 27% of the American population under 65 has a health care condition that automatically excluded them from insurance coverage before Obamacare. So all of those people would be back into a world where private insurance may not, would not even necessarily, wouldn't necessarily even be offered again if a state requested their way out of this. Add in one more thing. If one state decides to ask for the pre-existing condition waiver, and you're in a large business, that business now can offer insurance, can follow the rules of that one state. Under the, under the bill, they made it so anybody who has employer insurance also could get out of the minimum benefit standard. So they could drop maternity health, they could drop mental health coverage and things like that. So a lot of people could potentially end them, find themselves in that position. What they offer as a backup is these high-risk pools. Explain how that works a little more, Tool. So, so the, this backdoor, because in so you, what you're saying is that in any state, the state that has the the, uh, the the most effective lobbyists and the legislators with the least, least integrity, if they can get any state out of 50 to let them off the hook on the pre-existing conditions, it then applies in 50 states? How right. Would that so be? if you get the, the – and it, it's, um, it's especially around the minimum benefit standards that they opted you out of that. So if that state with um, 
decides to opt for dropping minimum benefit standards, and those are requirements that you have to cover maternity care and mental health and preventive care. If they, if one state opts out of it and you're a large employer, they included an amendment in the law that would allow that employer to use the standards of that lowest common denominator state. And what about a state like yours that had its, its own universal coverage? Yeah. And um, so on the one hand, we have both the Republican and the Democratic Party here vowing that if it disappears on a national level, they will sustain it here. But in order to sustain that here, they would need still the authority federally from Medicaid to, to use their Medicaid dollars to cover people more broadly and to maintain kind of these kinds of benefit standards. And the provisions in the Act that start start loosening those protections means that that there are ways in which large employers could decide to not follow the Massachusetts rules, even though they're employing you here. So what do you think the world would look like for doctors treating patients? I mean, doctors like yourself, not in Massachusetts, but in a state more like a southern state or a western state that isn't going to maintain its own, isn't likely to maintain its own robust protections. Well, so uh, it, it partly depends on what state you're in, because about, you had about a third of the states that were um, conservative, mostly southern states, that did not take the Medicaid funding to expand Medicaid. The result, though, is that if I'm a doctor practicing, let's, let's take a few example states. If I'm a doctor practicing in Ohio, John Kasich opted the state into Medicaid, so they got Medicaid coverage that covers everybody who is poor or near poor and ensures them that they have coverage and they can act. And if you're above that income level, you can get coverage on the healthcare exchange. So that's a state, also Kentucky's known like this, where they dropped from 16% uninsured to just 7%. And basically, if you got sick, you would get, um, you, you had access to being signed up for coverage that would assure you that you would get coverage. There's no, there's no um, gap. So, I mean, if you're really poor, you get Medicaid. If you're, if you're, poor but not desperately poor, you get, the, you get the subsidy, and in any case, you can buy insurance through the exchange. That's right. And, and you know, the, the, what, what people complain about is that the average person who is on the exchange has a $2,500 deductible. And when I talk to my friends back home in Ohio, where I'm from, um, you know, their big complaint is that I, I don't have 500 bucks in the bank and I've got a $2,500 deductible. So, um, you know, one friend had a heart attack and he was covered from a devastating $30,000 expense and, you know, had his life saved and wasn't bankrupted by it. But still, you know, um, uh, other folks can have a hard time coming up with that $2,500. The bottom line, though, is if I'm a doctor and think about people I've seen, I'm a cancer surgeon, right? I have not taken care of an an uninsured cancer patient in years. And for people in places like Ohio who practice in those kinds of fields, they're seeing and experiencing the same thing. Um, it's a dramatic transformation. I used to take care of about 15% of my patients were uninsured and we had to figure out how are they going to get their, their chemotherapy uh, follow-up taken care of, how are they going to get their radiation paid for, and things like that. That is what has disappeared. Now, a place like Mississippi didn't take the Medicaid funding. They've actually had an increased number in uninsured. They're over 20% uninsured. And, you know, things are clearly not going to get better there. And the people who are on the exchanges 
that's about 7% of the American public are on the exchanges, they're going to increasingly drop out. So you'll only see those numbers rise. Overall, does it look, does it just look like the world we had before Obamacare? Yes. And in some cases, potentially worse. Um, that's for two reasons. Number one is that the, uh, the number of people who have pre-existing conditions is rising. And that's for complicated reasons. 27% of the population, I said, under the age of 65 have a health care condition currently that made them uninsurable before Obamacare. So that's a substantial number of people. And the world has changed in, in, in two ways. Number one is a vast over 90% of the new job growth has been in non-traditional categories they are jobs without salaries and benefits your freelance workers temporary workers contract workers and those people you have a larger and larger number of people fall in that category who have to get coverage out on out on their own and so you have many more people who are unprotected than were unprotected pre- previous to obamacare that world has changed the second thing is big data the fact that we have big data now means that the insurers can look at everything from your shopping patterns to your zip code to other kinds of factors that that, that are beyond just what your health, current healthcare issue is and predict people who are likely to be at high cost. AI is making it so that larger and larger numbers of us, eventually all of us, you are able to predict how much healthcare needs you'll have in the future and for larger chunks of people you become you are someone even before you're not you have a health issue you um, become someone that insurers would love to avoid signing you up or would charge you a heck of a lot more so you know the world has changed in ways in which we're all pre-existing conditions waiting to happen and going on to job markets that are uh, less and less likely to have healthcare benefits of any kind, let alone decent healthcare benefits. What do you think Republicans who voted for this bill think the world would look like? I mean, posit a little bit of good faith that their goal is not to have people dying in the streets or to to ring in social Darwinism. Do they think private charity is going to kick in and we'll have a robust system of clinics and public hospitals? Um, because it's hard to believe that they think this bill will actually do what Donald Trump is claiming it will do. I mean, in many cases, they haven't even read it. They don't even know what's in it. Yeah, I mean, the shocking thing to me is that I think most of them, um, it's not that they're that most of them are interested in the Dar- Darwinian world of the Freedom Caucus ideologues. It's that they're fearful that they are, that there is a fired-up base of people who are in tune with that caucus who will vote them out in the next primary election. And the number of folks who I've talked to on both the congressional and and Senate side basically will say, look, you don't understand. In my district, I'm running against Attila the Hun, and that's what they have to think about. So it's depressing because at no point are they even interested in having that conversation about what is the goal of government for people who are in desperate need and don't have the money or have chronic health care costs that are, that are bankrupting them. And um, they'll say, no, 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 we don't want people dying in the streets. And that, but the way they get around is just by saying, sort of going, la, 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 la. <laughs> you know, they're just like, they'll just say over and over, this is going to cover it. This is going to cover it. This is going to cover it. So when the CBO estimates come out, they're going to be at least 
the 24 million uninsured and likely more, depending on how many people they predict will be affected by the added amendments that um, only make the, the past bad bill meaner. So, you know, then they'll just say, well, CBO, I don't believe CBO. That's fake news. CBO, be, that's fake news. The fake news, right? <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's not actually a conversation. I could have a, I think we could have a fantastic conversation about we're committed to covering everybody, but we think that it should be done by states and not the federal government. We want, we want, we want it to be more federalized. Great. We can have that conversation. No, no, no. I want more exposure. I want it to be more private sector driven. Great. Let's assure everybody has a car. You know, the, the, the funny thing about the, the many Democrats, not, not all, there, there's many who really feel strongly that this has to be a government insurance program, Medicare for all. Uh, you know, many are quite, quite open. If you tell me I want to make sure there's equitable coverage of a basic set of benefits and, you know, to compromise with the Republicans, we have to move to more health savings accounts or move to more, uh, to make it more state-based. I think you'd get a large majority that would pass that pretty rapidly, but it's the fear of the the vocal Freedom Caucus wing. So the moderate Republicans are afraid they're going to be primaried by right-wing Republicans and that they'll lose their seats in a primary. The Democrats seem to feel very certain that a lot of those moderate Republicans are going to lose seats in the midterm because they're in swing districts or districts that voted for Hillary Clinton, and they're in a kind of marginal state anyway. Uh, who's right? I guess they can both be right in that you can be afraid of one than the other. But I mean, do you think politically Democrats are right about how dangerous this is for the GOP? Well, I, I think both can be right. But you're also, you know, now you have the the doctor guy trying to talk politics, right? <laughs> well, you're a, do- you're a doctor who dabbles in politics. Don't don't I, try that on me at all. <laughs> but but I do think that that um, it's perfectly possible that the the centrist Republicans, you know, the sort of the, the slightly less conservative Republicans, become um, primaried out, right? So they, they, you have a, a more polarized um, uh, um, set of candidates, and then the Democrats may be right that they're able to win over more of the voters. I, I think here is the big danger for for liberals and Democrats in general. We have not um, so. We, we have been able to offer a message that is very, um, uh, that sells for the urban college educated population. 30% of the population has a college degree, 70% does not. And we have not been able to speak in ways that, that's able to connect with the very people who are most vulnerable. Um, and I think that's a critical failure that the constant thing you hear from people who are in those shoes is, I don't trust that the Democrats won't take my money. You know, someone earning $40,000 is just not convinced that anybody's out there to help them. They do see Democrats willing to back the poorest of the poor, but what about that person at the median income? And, you know, that's going to be the question in each of those elections. So you'll have a more right-wing candidate from the Republican Party. You'll have the Democrats, I think that the more that we hurt this population with these kinds of uh, laws and regulations changing, it makes it more possible for Democrats to make their case. Eventually, they start to recognize what their real interests are. I mean, if you make $40,000 a year and, and have marginal health insurance and you lose it and you voted for Trump, surely you're going you're gonna to rethink that decision in the next election. 
Right. So, they, I mean, this is the this is the critical question, though. the The forty thousand dollar person didn't get a very big subsidy here. They got a mandate. So, so the person who's only earning you know fifteen thousand dollars and picked up Medicaid coverage. You know, we now have sixty percent of people on Medicaid are the working poor, and they've gotten real aid. But the person who earned forty thousand dollars got a mandate to buy on the on the on the exchange. Got a health plan with a twenty five hundred dollar deductible. $50 copay every every time they see a doctor they're not convinced they were helped all that much unless they had a crisis event they had that like my friend who had that heart attack right suddenly they said okay I, I got a huge benefit out of this but for a ton of people they're not in the 5% who's the sickest people in a given year who use the health plans at that kind of level so the danger for us is that we're in the the bill the obamacare is insufficiently uh generous because you have a lot of people in the middle who didn't aren't feeling that they were that much better off. Yeah, I mean, well, that I guess goes to the question of, you know, would we have been better off with a single payer type of system? I mean, I've followed your your work on on this for a long time, and as far as I know, you've never been an advocate of single payer. I've never been an enthusiast for silver payer, single payer. But you know, after this bill passing, I kind of have the reaction of, boy, if we'd passed single payer. It wouldn't have been so easy to take it. It wouldn't be so easy to take it away. Well, I, I am absolutely not a, um, a an opponent of the idea that we would have um, Medicare for all or Medicaid for all, right? The, the the critical thing to me is that we're committed to equity in coverage and that we're committed to um, uh, fu- funding the coverage at, an, at a level that people aren't bankrupted by their health care costs. And the reality is, if you look around the world, you have everywhere from uh, Switzerland, which is private insurance, paid through taxpayers and um, regulated. You have the uh, French and German systems, which are taxpayer-based public insurance. And you have, you have the England, which is totally government-run, um, with the hospitals and doctors actually salaried employees of the government. You know, the interesting model, the, the place that I think we're likely evolving much more is that uh, we're almost starting to look more and more like Canada. We now have more people in our state-based government-run program, Medicaid, than are in Medicare. There's 70 million people now in Medicaid, which is bigger than the 50 million in Medicare. We forget that there's 155 million people who get coverage through their employer. And shifting that entire volume of people into one or another of those programs is such a massive transition that I just don't think it is not only not politically feasible, I think it has that the transitions are incredibly difficult. But there are ways to start moving either the 65-year-old age for coverage lower and lower because employers want to cover fewer of the people over 50 years old because they're the big, the big coverage costs. Or you say, look, we are going to assure that every kid is covered and as they get older, they'll be covered for the rest of their life. But you basically can phase in getting people into more coverage. Last thing on this, the irony of the high-risk pools is it's saying, let's take the 5% who are sickest, count for 50% of the health care costs, not put them in the private insurance market, but we're going to put them into a government-run health care program called a risk pool. I would be totally in favor of saying, yes, let's take the sickest population off of the markets and put them into you know, a better high-risk pool, put them in Medicaid, put them in Medicare. And you know, that will lower health care costs for the people in the private sector and open up this 
door that we gradually phase in that we have assured coverage for people. But phase it in or don't phase it in, but why shouldn't my position at this point be, you know, we tried to do a market-based system. We tried to give people benefits in a, with, with this complicated structure. People didn't understand it. There was a political reaction against it. We ultimately, It ultimately wasn't secure. I'm now in favor of removing the words over 65 from Medicare. Yeah, there's no, there's no reason to, to not think we couldn't do that. One of the ironies is even in Medicare, one-third of people have Medicare Advantage, which is private insurance. You know, so we're, we're, we actually, Medicare itself is becoming more like Obamacare. You have competing Medicare Advantage insurers for people. And so opening all of that up, opening that system up more widely, um, you know, you have people like Bill Cassidy, who's the Louisiana senator for, a Republican, he and Susan Collins put in a bill saying, um, essentially, you know, what they favor is that it not be Washington run, it be state run, that you would open up um, and that they want to have, let each state choose. Do you want to keep Obamacare? Do you want to move towards Medicaid for all? Do you want to move towards Medicare for all? Do you want to move towards healthcare savings accounts and make it work that way, but with a taxpayer base, right? That's essentially the likely direction I think that we go. I've been speaking to Atul Gawande. He's a writer for The New Yorker and the author of the excellent book, Being Mortal. Atul, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai, he's the executive producer of Slate Podcast. June Thomas. She's the managing producer of Slate Podcast. We all work for Andy Bowers. He's the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. And John Domenico, as always, is our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.